0: Uh Uh-oh, yeah, (laughs) that got on the recording. So what are we doing today? Today we are looking at something simple on one level. So, you know, some of these lectures we've looked at some things that are quite complex philosophically. Uh, This should be relatively straightforward, but there are some bits of information I want to make sure you hear. Also some applications about certain commandments, and in particular uh, some of the what we call the five precepts of the Church. So today we are looking at the commandments, which means we're going into a whole new section of the Catechism. So to my mind, we've left behind the loveliness of beatitude and virtue, and uh, we're looking at the the hardcore of the commandments. So a few Takeaway points, the commandments are referred to as a coherent whole, is how the Catechism describes all the commandments. Meaning that all those little bits of commandments, they're not isolated, um, they're a coherent whole. So here you're gonna see my beautiful artwork again. The two tablets that Moses came down the mountain with uh, are often referred to as you know, the commandments that relate to God and the commandments that relate to your neighbor. Just noticing that I was praying in St. Joseph's Chapel just yesterday, one of the images around the wall is is just this image printed just like this of the two tablets of the law. Those duties that relate me to the Lord and those duties that relate me to my neighbour. We're going to note that the catechism makes a Um, decision to follow the traditional catechetical structure, namely the commandments. So, not structure the moral life around the virtues, the way St. Thomas does. Um, Not structure the moral life around the vices around the commandments. We're going to note that the Ten Commandments have a permanent relevance, that they underpin The Sermon on the Mount, so the relationship between the new and the old, that they're not in opposition, we'll also note that they're referred to as the ten words spoken to us. And then the precepts of the church. So the professors that were sitting in grading my teaching, I was expecting at least one of them to make some, some comment about my handwriting but they didn't so that's okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have to go see Miss Polko, and she'd probably make me (laughs) learn (laughs) 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 the Okay, memory test, catechism test, catechetical formation test. Who can tell me what the five precepts of the church are? Any of them, any of them. Wow, okay, very good. Which is the first one? Okay, yeah, Mass on, on Sunday. Uh, the observance of feast days. During Lent, in preparation for Easter. Okay, so, strictly speaking, annual confession and Easter communion. So you're required You're required to go to communion once a year in the Easter season. You're required to go to confession once a year. The precept doesn't say when, but obviously if you're gonna to go to communion once a year at Easter, the implication would be you're going in preparation for that. And thus, standard Catholic practice, we see a lot more people at confession in Lent than we do other times of the year. I'm gonna note the correspondence here of frequency. Once a year communion, once a year confession, if one's getting more frequent, you expect the other one to get more frequent as well. Whereas we've got this dynamic among lots of people who might think, well, I kinda do go to confession. And they go once a year, but they're at communion every Sunday, and it doesn't even occur to them, shall I go to communion? Just they trot up in the line like everyone else. Um, the law of the church implies a correspondence and frequency here. Fifth, anyone support the church? Yes, though, interestingly, we'll the the yeah, okay, yep, yep, tithing, supporting the church. Oh well. Okay, so, page one, I've got some general comments about um, how the Catechism's been written to start with, noting the structure of part three. So, as we've gone through this course, I've tried to note to you why the Catechism's been put together as it has. So, as I say, there are two parts of the section of the Catechism we're looking at, life in Christ. First section a long introduction with many subsections and i said we've spent the first half of this course summarizing that section whereas if you look in the catechism that was the shorter part of it but we've spent most of our time on it um, and that was the direction i was given this is an introductory course so we'll actually focus more of the attention on those introductory questions so we're now going to really kind of pick up speed as we're going through the rest of the catechism so as of today you have no more written assignments but you do have more reading lecture by lecture in order to kind of get through the material Section 2 of the catechism uh moral presentation is on the 10 commandments yeah Wait, one more break, uh, one more
1: You didn't have to remind him James. Oh
0: yes you do okay <laughs> but you're right we do we but do Yes. don't
1: have any more assigned from this point forward Yes, so we've been assigned yes. Already.
0: Yes. So I had assigned it already, but yeah. Okay. Okay. You're right. So that's also on the recording. So they're going to hear me make lots of mistakes today. So this, it's great. This is, I was going to say, I don't need to say the lesson of humility today because I've just got a few, few things the Lord's given me today. Just freebies. Okay. Okay, what do, I, what do I note here? Uh, I say the Ten Commandments, I say, are the traditional catechetical structure for morality. Um, say so St. Thomas's Summa was structured around the virtues and vices, but the catechism's editors chose, and I hear I quote Cardinal Schoenborn, who was the principal editor of the catechism, to follow the proven framework of the Decalogue, because it has been used by centuries of catechisms. Quoting again, the expositions of the individual commandments all begin on a positive note by drawing attention to the virtues and attitudes that correspond to the commandments in question. For example, the article on the first commandment expounds the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. But the structure is around the Ten Commandments. and. You know, when we look down the centuries, all the catechisms or all the major catechisms have always taken that as their structure. But I've noted that the kind of content of this catechism is very virtue-based, even though it's taken the structure of the commandments. And so it's significant that it starts the first commandment by expounding on three virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And it describes them as virtues, Um, okay. Next point, Uh, I said the permanent relevance of the Ten Commandments. So yeah, we live in a world, everyone wants to be modern, progressive. You know the commandments, that was the old stuff. Um, The media love it whenever they hear somebody say, oh, a new set of commandments, as if we can get rid of the old ones. the catechism has got the old ones in there. Uh, why? Well, I say the then Cardinal Ratzinger uh, argued for structuring the catechism around the Ten Commandments by noting that the Decalogue underpins the Sermon on the Mount and all of St. Paul's moral exhortation. So the new stuff, the new covenant, you can't have that without the underpinning of the old. Uh, Francisco, can you read that quote from Romans? Yes, Owe no,
2: no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to, the, to a neighbor, Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law.
0: So St. Paul there isn't pitting the Ten Commandments against the law, the new law. You go further, I say, any attempted pitting of the New Testament against the law, because you know there's other contexts where St. Paul does bash the law, so I say, mistakenly identifies the Decalogue with the law, Whereas whereas in St. Paul, the law that St. Paul says we've been set free from is the Torah, not the moral life articulated in the Decalogue. So the circumcision, the not-eating pork, all those things are part of the Torah, but they're not part of the Ten Commandments. And that's what we've been set free from. That's what St. Paul is saying, the law we've been set free from. Which is very simple point but you know you will sometimes hear a parishioner or or somebody say ah but we've been set free from the law well which law yes you've been set free from the pork restrictions and the needing to sprinkle the blood on the altar and the the torah you haven't been set free from the ten commandments because that's if you remember earlier in the course written in your nature written on on your heart Then, quoting Ratzinger directly, Brother Adam, could you read the first bullet point? The Moral Teaching of the Decalogue.
1: The Moral Teaching of the Decalogue thus retains its full validity, but now has its place in the living environment of grace.
0: And Brother Adam? uh, Adam.
2: Following Christ as his disciple goes hand in hand with the comprehension of all individual commandments in the light of the one commandment to love.
0: Okay, so that's a fairly simple point, but you've, I'm guessing you've all heard that kind of line, well, haven't we been set free from, and it it kind of gets said slightly differently, but this is a simple catechetical point to say in response to that. Over the page then, not over the page. Turning, flip the, page. Flip the pa- flipping the page, I was corrected. That I've, for three years here, I've been saying over the page. Now I will start saying flipping the page. Um, can say next page. Next page? Okay. Where? Okay. Page two, the, the Decalogue. So uh, I'm guessing most of you, all of you already know the term Decalogue literally means 10 words. So that was in the catechism paragraphs you've read. I.e. they were spoken to us by the Lord God. And I note that scripture translations typically refer to them as the Ten Commandments. Um, but the Hebrew literally says ten words. And interestingly, the old-fashioned Douay Reims translation, if you read it, doesn't refer to the Ten Commandments. It says ten words. But almost any Bible translation other than that that you get will refer to the Ten Commandments. Um, just to note the context of the Exodus, I say it was after the saving event of the Exodus that God revealed the Decalogue and established the covenant with his chosen people. So this is the essential context to understand the Decalogue. I had ten words that Bring life and freedom from the slavery of sin. Um, Josh, can you read that?
3: If you love the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply.
0: There's an if-then structure there. If you keep my commandments, then you will live long and multiply. Um, and when is that being said, they've come out of slavery, they've been rescued, they've been chosen as his people. There on the mountain, they make, they make a deal with God, a covenant, an agreement, a contract. If they do that, keep his commandments, then he will be faithful to his promises. They will have a land, they will be the people, they will be fruitful. How many of you, you, none of you have done scripture yet, so the notion of covenant, so what is a covenant? It's an agreement between two people, two parties, typically a, a senior and a junior, a more powerful and a less powerful. So many comparisons are made in the ancient Near East. So one king conquers another people, but he then makes an agreement with them that if they pay their taxes, keep the laws and so forth, then they will have his protection, they will be under his um, care. Similarly, a covenant between God and his chosen people um, is a binding agreement. And it's typical for there to be, as there is in the covenant in the scripture, conditions in those binding agreements. If you break my covenant, you will be cast out of the land. What happens, they do break the covenant, they are cast out. But God, who is always faithful, purifies them, brings them back. Um, Anyway, so the notion of a covenant. Where do the commandments fit? They're part of the covenant. Then just list them all there, the two tables of the law, duties to God, duties to man, And note that the catechism says it's a coherent whole with the two tables shedding light on one another. Uh, John Paul, can you read One Cannot Honor?
1: One Cannot Honor.
0: Okay, the numbering system. Do we all know that there's an issue about how to number the Ten Commandments? That our Protestant friends do not number them the same way we do? Did you know that?
1: I knew that they numbered them differently, but I
0: I don't know how. Okay, Uh, so the Bible itself doesn't number them. It says they're 10, but it doesn't then say one, two, three, four. Um, So any numbering of the 10 is by the later Christian tradition I say here, as listed above, the Catechism follows the numbering system of Saint Augustine rather than that of Luther. The Protestant numbering system makes graven images a commandment distinct from false gods, which therefore gives the appearance of you know, attacking our graven images of Our Lady and so forth as statues. Um, but the command, the scriptures themselves don't don't number them, so for the Protestant numbering, there are four in this category and six in this category. Um, yeah.
1: What two did the Protestants then combine?
0: The the last two, uncovering. Okay, moving on. Um, That's going to depend on different translations you've got and so forth. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that question with any... So you're saying
1: they have four...
0: In the um, first um, column, yeah. In the first okay. First table. Okay, so this lecture is then going to unpack this table here putting God first. See, the first table refers to God. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments, of the commandment. I say mistaken contemporary catechesis often speaks of love but fails to note that the Lord Jesus calls us to order and structure love such that he comes first. So when you're planning your life, planning your day, your priorities put God first. According to the Catechism, God has loved us first. The love of the one God is recalled in the first of the 10 words, the commandments, then make explicit the response of love that man is called to give to his God. Then note the structure there. So love of God is not a mere sentiment. It has a specific form. So the Catechism lays it out. We commit ourselves to him in faith, hope, and love. We serve him alone positively in adoration, prayer, and sacrifice. Negatively in rejecting superstition, idolatry, divination, and magic. Um, the Sabbath, so a word on the importance of the Sabbath. So summarizing what the Catechism says, um, the Sabbath, what does it recall? Well, firstly, creation, the seventh day. It recalls also the liberation of Israel from Egypt. Uh, Hunter, could you read, you shall remember?
1: You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out thence with mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And Michael. God entrusted
3: the Sabbath to Israel to keep as a sign of the irrevocable covenant. The Sabbath is for the Lord, holy and set apart for the praise of God his work of creation,
0: and his saving actions on behalf of Israel. And then the day of the resurrection, Sunday as the new Sabbath, um, is the day of the new creation. The Lord rose on that day, remade everything on that day. So the Jewish Sabbath, remembering the seventh day of creation, the Christian Sabbath, incorporating that into the new creation in the resurrection of the Lord. And we don't really we can't really see historically a moment when that changed, you know, for Christians to be observing Sunday, not the Sabbath. You know, our Seventh day Adventists and whatever will say that they're following the original, whatever, but they can't point to a place in history where you can ever find Christians doing what they say is the original so all we can conclude is it was right there at the beginning, the acknowledgement that for Christians they're observing a new beginning, a new day of creation. So Sunday is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. Uh, Eric, can you read that quote from the Catechism?
3: In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truth of the Jewish Sabbath and announces man's eternal rest in God.
0: And Jake, can you read the last one?
3: The celebration of Sunday is the world commandment
2: inscribed by nature in the human heart to render God an outward, visible, public and regular worship as a sign of His universal
0: Beneficence.
2: Beneficence to all.
0: Okay. So remember when we looked at natural law earlier in this course, I gave you the example of a teaching that just from reason, You can figure out you need to worship God and worship him somehow with sensible signs because you are a sensible bodily being. That is all fulfilled in the celebration of Sunday and of Mass on Sunday. Uh, If we have time, there's some later pages on Sunday Mass. um, But I'm first going to go through the precepts of the church with you. So this is, as a catechism level course, among its other functions, supposed to make sure all seminarians get a kind of basic grounding in certain basics. I want to be sure you know the precepts of the church. So later lectures in this course will summarize the catechism's treatment of the second table of the commandments. But the rest of today's lecture will outline the five precepts by which the church specifies certain practices that we must follow to live out the first table of the commandments. By those duties we owe to God at somehow a minimal level. Just some general comments about the precepts. So I say the church, our mother, gives us precepts in addition to the Ten Commandments. Not to punish us, not to make our life awkward, to help us. See, church law makes determinate many aspects of the moral law that are present in the natural moral law or in the Ten Commandments, but only in some kind of vague, indeterminate way. For example, the natural law requires humans to fast, but this is just a kind of general requirement. Thus, as a loving mother, the church law determines specific days when fasting is obligatory. Yeah? Yeah?
3: Can
0: you explain that further? The natural law requires fasting. A bit like the natural law requires the worship of God uh, on a regular basis, using sensible signs. We can just see from all human history, all humans, just this awareness that there's a time for fasting, there's a time for feasting. You don't need to reason too long to figure out, it just somehow makes sense to have times when we are giving things up for God, giving things up fasting in order to refocus on the deeper things in life. You know, the super woke secular world is doing detoxing fasting, in a, you know, it's very fashionable these days. Reason can discern um, that it's... Yeah, you're not, oh come on, get with the times. Yeah, so detoxing. So you, all this super processed food you're using, you need to detox. So, you know, nothing but water for the next three days and you will detox your body your skin will look radiant. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, so I'm, I'm only half joking. There is actually a deep truth that, that the secular world is seeing there, um, but that we also see in every religion of the world. That's kind of a very brief natural law argument. Fasting is just natural to us. Now, why does the church make us do it on certain days? So you'll have a certain type of parishioner that will say, well, you know, I just feel free and I'm gonna do that when it kind of feels right to me. Um, How do you appeal to that kind of, I would always use the language of community. You can't be part of a community unless there are things you do together. So observing Friday, as a day of self-denial together. Us observing Sunday as a day of mass together. You can't be a community unless somebody within the community, the decision-maker maps out. We are the same. We are bound together by these specific practices. And so the church, our loving mother, specifies these things. I
2: was gonna say, like someone that says, oh, I'll fast when I'm, want to fast it doesn't even seem like fasting because the whole point is denying yourself but if you're like oh I'll do it when I'm feeling like it then it seems like you're you know destroying the whole concept of what fasting actually is
0: there's certainly a large part of fasting is I'm not in the mood I'm doing it anyway yeah Okay, our next note, I say, these precepts bind under pain of sin. Say, then quoting the Catechism, the obligatory character of these positive laws decreed by the pastoral authorities is meant to guarantee to the faithful the indispensable minimum. Obligatory. He who, bind, he, uh, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. The authorities of the church have from the Lord the authority to bind things on us. And they do that for our good, but they are then morally obligatory. I sin by failing to keep these precepts. And there aren't many such precepts. Sorry, yeah?
2: Uh, and that's in uh, paragraph. It goes on to say, in the spirit of prayer and moral effort in the growth in love of God and neighbor. Is that kind of saying that if you only doing that, the following those precepts, you will grow in love with God and neighbor? Because it seems kind of...
0: Just checking, got the right number there. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at um, So, I think that's just the broader context. What does this do? You grow in love of God and neighbor by these things, with prayer and effort. I suppose wanting to not just make a kind of random rule that has no effects in your life the growth of love of God and neighbour prayer Um, where do we find this in the tradition I say the church has issued such precepts since our earliest records with the didache of the apostles prescribing Wednesdays and Fridays as days of fasting so the Didache after the Gospels and the, you know, Paul's epistles and such, the very earliest record we have in the church, um, the Didache meaning the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, um, and it includes already at that stage binding laws on the faithful to fast Wednesdays and Fridays. And then the last thing, kind of general thing I note here is a moral principle in terms of the question, these are precepts, they are binding, you sin if you do not do them, but an important principle, that which is physically impossible cannot be morally obligatory. For example, someone who cannot physically attend Mass cannot be obliged to do so. And then in the context of COVID-19, if there's no public Mass, then there's no obligation to attend it. So I can remember at the end of the first lockdown in the UK, which was three and a half months, three and a half months when the people didn't have access to Mass, and I had people saying, do I need to confess that? So I've not been to Mass for three and a half months, and you need to confess it when you don't go to Mass. Well, it's amazing how many people out there have this very confused notion of what confession's about. It's not a sin if it's not an obligation. If you can't do it, it's not an obligation. So sometimes we should confess things when we're not sure whether it's an obligation or not, and we kind of say that to the priest seeking clarification. But that should be, to a reasonably well informed Catholic, pretty obvious. I wasn't allowed to get to Mass, so how could it be my fault that I didn't go? Therefore, I don't need to confess it.
2: In the parish I, I work in, and I uh, worked in the summer, and in my community, the opposite happens, where they're from Guatemala, Mexico, like these places where if they don't see a priest like, in three, four months. Mm-hmm. and then they come to the United States and they don't show off for Mass every Sunday. He says, oh, I don't have to. And it's like, yes, you do, because you have the option.
0: Not the option, the possibility. The possibility. Yeah, okay, uh, just morally speaking. Um, yeah, so if you grow up in a culture where it's not normally possible, then you don't get habituated into the realization that it's an obligation, generally speaking. Um, but it's not an obligation to you if you can't get to Mass. Okay, first, page five now, going through the, the precepts. I'm checking my numbering here now. Okay, the first precept. You should, um, uh, John Paul, can you read the first precept to us?
1: requires the faithful to participate in the Eucharistic celebration when the Christian community gathers together on the day commemorating the resurrection of the Lord.
0: Okay, now I note further, if this is from Canon Law, but just so you're clear, a pastor, meaning the priest in charge of the parish, for a just cause can dispense in individual cases someone from this obligation. Or a pastor can grant a commutation of the obligation into other pious works. What does commutation, commuting, mean? I say a dispensation can include reducing rather than removing an obligation. Then I quote a canon lawyer, for example, the pastor could commute the obligation to attend Mass on Sunday to another day each week. Or for example, oblige someone about to go on vacation to say three rosaries rather than attend that coming mass. So I as a pastor can, someone can say, I want to book this vacation in outer Mongolia. And if I go there, I'm pretty sure I won't be able to get to mass for for three weeks. Is it okay for me to go? It's possible for me as a pastor to dispense them from the obligation for that time period. It's also possible for them to decide that mass is important enough that they're not gonna go to such a place. But the fact that the church gives such a structure implies that sometimes that is an appropriate thing to do. But you can imagine someone might just kind of always, well, Whenever I go on vacation, I don't want to go to Mass. So I go to my pastor beforehand and ask for dispensation. You can see how that could get abused. But that this is the structure of the church, that it is possible to ask for dispensation.
2: At least if they're asking, they care enough to not want to sin. Just trying to look at it in a positive light.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed.
2: You, you'll, I, you'll see.
0: I, I I'm going to mass. Mm-hmm. Um, you're more going to find a problem with this in an older legalistic generation where mass isn't kind of an act of worship, it's somehow a checking of a box. Um, and I found out that I can get a, a, away without needing to check the box if I ask the priest for dispensation. Um, And those are pastoral issues where sometimes you need to somehow try and broaden somebody's whole mindset and approach. But anyway, that's the basic approach there, Sunday Mass. I think we covered this example earlier when I talked about the manuals very early in the course. How far away from a church does someone have to be before they're no longer bound to get to Sunday Mass. So if you're a thousand miles from the nearest church, it's morally impossible to get to Mass. You're not bound to go. There's no obligation. How far do you have to be before the obligation ceases? Do you, anyone remember what I said? More than an hour? An hour driving, or...
1: Oh, I thought it was an hour each way, depending, not, not respective of what you were... Method
0: of travel? Yeah, right. um, the other criteria in the manuals is three miles if you're walking, which a steady walking place is about three miles an hour. So you can kind of see that that's almost the same criteria, but the manuals make that distinction.
3: Do you mean one hour each way or total?
0: Uh, I think each way, but I don't. So if it's three miles, that would seem to imply an each OH way, wouldn't it, if that's mapping out the same kind of time frame? Um, I'd have to go back to the manuals. If you look at one of the very early lectures, there's some footnotes there you can follow on that question. Yeah? So would the
3: Exactly, exactly,
0: to to on Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday whatever, yeah. So. He's got a regular um, shift pattern that he works on a Sunday, and we need doctors to be working on a Sunday because otherwise people die in the hospitals. Um, so you can commute that to another day of the week, um, which is a way of expressing that actually this does still need to be lived out. Okay, second precept, annual confession. Uh, Michael, can you read this one to us?
3: Second precept, you shall confess your sins at least once a year. Ensures preparation for the Eucharist by the reception of the sacrament of reconciliation, which continues baptism to work of conversion and forgiveness.
0: Okay, at least once a year. So, so I then asked the question more generally how often should someone confess? So, and I articulate a principle. The frequency of our use of the sacrament should be proportionate to two things. A, the quality of our examination of conscience and our confession. For example, it doesn't make sense to confess weekly if you admit confessing venial sins and have no mortal sins. So if you're not doing a thorough examination and you don't have mortal sins, it's just going to be a bit weird going to confession every week. You read in some book that the saints went to confession every week, so you start going every week, but you don't start examining your conscience in detail, so you kind of don't really have anything to say. Well, some things are not working out there. The other criteria B, how much we avail of the other means towards salvation and holiness. For example, someone who makes a daily holy hour and attends daily mass should correspondingly confess more than monthly. Conversely, someone who does not engage in mental prayer or weekday mass will gain little from weekly confession of venial sins. So going to confession is one of the tools to holiness, one of the tools to become a saint. You want to grow in the frequency of that in proportion to your growing in the frequency of the other tools to holiness. So, you know, we generally be recommending to seminarians uh, confession every two weeks or every one week, but that's because we're presuming you're doing at least a half hour of mental prayer every day, um, a significant part of your breviary, rosary, um, spiritual reading. If you're doing all those things, then proportionately the frequency of your confession should grow too. But if you're not doing those other things and you go into confession frequently, it's kind of not gonna work. So the image I often use is of a car engine. You know, the engine of a car has lots of moving bits. The gears, if one bit of the gear starts moving really fast and the other doesn't, the whole engine blows apart. But as one bit starts moving faster, the other bit moves faster with it, and the whole speed increases. You want in your spiritual life the speed of all those things to move together. Okay, I then spell that out in some examples. I say, so monthly confession, this I say is the standard advice for a parishioner who only attends Mass on Sunday. Weekly Confession, I say advised by, among others, St. Francis de Sales. I know Weekly Confession was required for religious in the 1917 code. And I note that Weekly Confession is common among the new ecclesial movements, as we call them. So, FOCUS, SPO, and so forth. You're mixing in those circles, you will just find lots of young people going to Weekly Confession. Even Daily Confession. Um, Pope John Paul II's personal example. Uh, I can only imagine he was examining his conscience very well. Um, And for that to be done well, he would have somehow had a freedom, not an obsessive scrupulosity, in looking at himself every day. So this is one of the reasons your frequency of confession should be one of those things you discuss with your spiritual director, so that it doesn't become obsessive but rather it becomes a thing in freedom, a tool to holiness. Okay, so that takes us through briefly the second precept. Oh, sorry, over the page, top of page six. Yearly confession. So I know this is the legal minimum. Yeah, that is what the precept said. But a legal minimum is not a recommendation. See, I note this legal minimum annual confession need not be per se at Easter tide, according to the precept, but it needs to be at Easter tide if we're going to facilitate the worthy reception of Holy Communion at Easter tide, which is the third precept. So, if you get a parishioner say to you, as you will sometimes have a clever parishioner say to you, "Ah, um, oh, but you only have to go to confession once a year." Well, say. And are you only going to communion once a year? Mm-hmm. That's a line of often used. And I say, that's fine if you're only going to communion once a year. Is, is that what you're doing? Is that, you're, you're happy with that? Then that's all matching up. Um, yeah? you
3: feel like that's a good recipe for
0: salvation? No, it's not a good... The, the, <laughs> le, the legal minimum... So as I, as I often say, if you miss the minimum, the consequence is eternal damnation. <laughs> So, you know, if that's all you're aiming for is the minimum, that's a very risky strategy. Um, Okay. Yes, I am right so far. Third precept, Easter communion. Um, Hunter, can you read this one to us?
1: The third precept, you shall humbly receive your Creator in Holy Communion at least during the Easter season guarantees as a minimum the reception of the Lord's body and blood in connection with the Paschal feasts, the origin and center of the Christian liturgy.
0: Uh, Just now, I realize I haven't pointed this out. So in each of these times when the Catechism is saying the first precept, second, it then has in quotations from a much more ancient source, what is the precept? Okay, I note then, in earlier ages of the church, Holy Communion was a much less casual event than it is today. Receiving Holy Communion was taken seriously and only occurred occasionally. At the 1215 uh, Lateran Council, it was decreed that it should be received at least once a year at Easter Eastertide, because people were receiving so rarely. And I note, as I've already said, annual confession and annual communion gives us an indication that the frequency of these two should be related. Weekly communion, but twice yearly confession, fails in this regard. And in particular, I note Pius X call for more frequent communion was accompanied by frequent confession. We had a very interesting talk by uh, Bishop Mark Davis, one of our English bishops, on this whole point. Uh, And he was going, describing historically you know, the early part of the 20th century, this change of practice could really be seen. The church promoting frequent communion, but frequent confession going hand in hand with that. And somehow, after the 60s, we had frequent communion continue if not accelerate, but confession drop out. So that one part of the church's reform Stayed, but the thing that kind of made it coherent was lost. This ensures times of ascesis and penance, which prepare us for the liturgical feasts and help us to acquire mastery of our instincts and freedom of heart. Fasting and abstinence, Um, so um, the Columbus seminarians last year kind of as a group resolved on before feast days to have a day of abstinence from meat. That's kind of following the pattern here, to prepare us for the feasts there should be some form of fasting and that's kind of the general principle. Um, We're phrasing it differently, there's a time for feasting, a time for fasting. Is we read in the Old Testament. Um, and that's the point I frequently make in the parish when I'm preaching about Lenten fasting and so forth. You know, feasting is great, but there's a time when we don't feast. And if my fasting's going to be tough, I know there's going to be a time when my feasting is going to be great too. Yeah?
3: Um, so this... Keeping the holidays obligation, but pretty much all of them have been moved
0: to Sundays. Yeah, in this country. So that's only in America. Oh. So bishops' conferences have the capacity to shift them to another day or to just make them not obligatory at all. So the list of which are obligatory varies country by country. <coughs> So Immaculate Conception is obligatory here, it's not in England. Um, So it's not even transferred to the Sunday, whereas here, is Assumption transferred to the Sunday? No. Ascension is. Ascension is, Corpus Christi is. um, In England, it was, those two were on Sunday, now they've been flipped back to, the kind of proper day so that 40 days after he rose, he ascended, we observe it on the 40th. But now they're talking about moving it back. I um, don't know if that's happened while I was gone. It's, anyway, sorry, yeah, sure. Then on your list there, um, tithing is, The fifth precept. The fifth precept, you shall help to provide for the needs of the church, means that the faithful are obliged to assist with the material needs of the church, each according to his own ability. That's the fifth precept. And I note um, that there's no percentage listed there by the church. Um, scripture gives the 10% rule. You'll find all kinds of new movements here in America, in particular, promoting that. But the script, uh, catechism doesn't give a percentage. Yeah?
3: Is there a reason why like, all these requirements are like, incredibly low?
0: Because they're the minimum, which was one of the points made at the beginning about them, they're establishing a minimum. They if you, if you, if you, they could, um, but the point of a minimum with an obligation is, if you don't do it, you sin. So a recommendation will be more, but a precept, if you don't do this, this is a sin. And the church, generally speaking, is, is wary of imposing obligations. And kind of, she should be wary of imposing obligations. Um, you, don't to, you don't want to force virtue, I guess. Or put people in a state of sin um, by making it too difficult for those that are weak. Let me skip over to page eight. just to spell out um, the fourth precept on fasting and abstinence. So as I said, if a parishioner says, well, you know, I don't want to feel bound by particular days, who's the church to tell me? The point about community, you can't be a community unless you do things together. And the church says, well, there's some days that have a significance and importance that all of us together are going to do this and we impose this, therefore, on you as a precept, as an obligation. So I say, church law determines specific days when fasting is obligatory. So fasting and abstinence from meat is on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So Catholics aged 14 and older are required to abstain. Can you read that law for us?
3: The law of abstinence forbids the eating of meat but eggs, milk products, and condiments made from meat may be eaten. Fish and all cold-blooded animals may be eaten. E.g. frogs, clams, turtles,
0: etc. Did we cover the definition of meat in another? I can't remember how on earth that came in. Okay, so condiments are bacon bits. Are bacon bits that have never, ever seen a pig. Those are... Okay to eat on a Friday. You might, in the spirit of the law, say, I'm not going to put it on my salad on a Friday. Our bacon bits, however, because our food here is so wonderful, are real bacon. Therefore, we shouldn't have them on a Friday.
1: Yeah. But isn't that
0: a condiment? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the definition of a condiment in the I think the broader text I would have quoted earlier, is something derived from. A chunk of meat is still, a small chunk of meat is still meat. Whereas if you blend it, process it, put it in a sauce, then it's become a condiment. So like a meat gravy is meat derivative rather than meat. I think you could still question is the spirit of the law, you know, if I have a wonderful thick meat gravy, (laughs)
3: strange <laughs> Okay,
0: yeah. Good for you. Um, so, if you're older than 14, you're required to abstain. If you're over 18, but under 59, so the law of abstinence holds your, it doesn't matter how old you are, fasting, because the body gets weak if you're too young, or weak if you're too old, has an age range. Can you read that for
2: us? The law of
1: fast prescribes that only one full meal a day is taken in addition two lighter meals are permitted to maintain strength according to each one's needs eating between meals is not permitted but liquids including milk and fruit juices are
2: allowed
0: so the document I'm quoting there is from Paul the 6th and that was a decree after the council it revised various bits of church law on fasting that is the current law on those two questions Um, you can find that document easily on the internet. Among the bits of my lecture notes that you preciously keep, this might be one bit to make sure you've got somewhere handy. So that when you're talking to parishioners, it's not just what off the top of your head you're saying, or my opinion. Actually, what does the church say? Okay, abstinence from meat on Fridays. I know Canon's the canons I list there enable local bishops' conferences to replace the universal practice of Friday abstinence with another practice. So it is the universal law of the church, canon law, no meat on Fridays, all across the world. But in each country with a bishops' conference, they can replace that practice with something else. In America, I say, as of 1966, by determination of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, on Fridays of Lent and Ash Wednesday, Catholics are obliged to abstain from meat. Other Fridays, the NCCB recommends, recommends nonetheless, abstinence from meat, prayer and penance, especially by eating less food, saying, Friday should be in each week, something of what Lent is in the entire year. For this reason, we urge all to prepare for that weekly Easter that comes with each Sunday by freely making of every Friday a day of self-denial and mortification and prayerful remembrance of the Passion of the Lord Jesus. In addition, other weekdays of Lent, um, the NCCB strongly recommends fasting. So, the
3: canon requires that they replace the practice with you just said we recommend it, but we're not requiring it, but
0: they didn't it with it. Yeah, I'm not going to stand here and attack the bishops. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think you could say that they didn't really check the box. The, the vision, I think, for allowing local bishops' conferences to do that was, in some places, having people eat fish instead of meat, actually fish was nicer. Um, or fish was more expensive. or So replace meat with something else in that culture. Instead, most places seem to go along with this thing of, well, we'll just make it easier, um, which, as you're suggesting, doesn't really seem coherent. Okay, briefly, traveling. I say territorial laws, not personal laws. So there are some laws of the church that are defined for a person, So we have before us here a member of the Fathers of Mercy. He has laws that bind him, not because of where he is, but because of who he is, a member of the Fathers of Mercy. There are other laws that depend on where you are, their territory. These laws are territorial, not personal. Meaning if you pass through a country, while you're there, you're bound by those laws. So you pass through Canada, on a holy day of obligation, you're bound by Canada's laws while you're there, but America's laws while you're here. Which means, among other things, you might conveniently travel to avoid all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be a bizarre thing to do. But
1: could you also then travel to get like a double obligation for
0: one? Yes, you can, and I've had that. Ha- I've had that happen to me as well. Uh, you. Um, so,
1: like if a feast was transferred to the Sunday and you were in a place where it was not transferred, you would still be obliged to go on the original day and then you would come back and celebrate it again yeah if you were. Okay.
0: yeah and for, and for me, hopping between Rome, the Vatican, and England, I had that combination many times um, but whereby I could celebrate Corpus Christi multiple times or avoid it multiple times. Um, okay, I think that's the the general principle you've got there. Um, so what have we been looking at today? The commandments. Um, noting this is the traditional catechetical structure being followed. Um, so the rest of the catechism we're gonna go through We're looking at it commandment by commandment as we go through different things. And the catechism pulls together huge chunks of the moral life under the grouping of those 10 commandments, which is the traditional way um, the moral life has been expounded down the centuries. So we noted before um, the 10 commandments are in the natural law all of the moral obligations are somewhere in there, that's the way the catechism structures it too. All of the moral duties, they're in there somewhere. Where is it?